You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, as again, as we open up your word to uh, the gospels and we look at Jesus's parables, we ask for insight, and for understanding, and for our own life to be shaped by the power of the word and spirit of God. Uh, together we praise you this Lord's Day in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I don't have all the text uh, on this sheet that I'd like to use. Uh, Jesus's parable of the great banquet is set in the context of Luke's travel narrative. From Luke chapter 9 on, Jesus is heading to the cross. And embedded in that narrative are these parables. Uh, Unlike Matthew that groups the parables largely together, Luke sort of uses them illustratively interspersed in the narrative. What begins this parable is really another parable, the parable of the narrow door. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 22, I'm reading from there. We'll get to our uh, prescribed text in a moment, but let me set the scene because the scene's really important here. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, that's the question. That's the question that determines both the narrative interaction as well as the parables that follow. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus' response to that question was really not to answer it. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. So essentially, he says, don't worry about others. Worry about yourself. And you make every effort to enter through that narrow door. I hope that none of you can think of that narrow door parable without thinking of the narrow door to the right of the pulpit in the nave. (laughs) uh, You know, it's just architecturally significant, I think, that most of the church passes through that narrow door uh, every week. I hope that's kind of iconic and symbolic of us having, by the Spirit of God, passed through that narrow door. So that sets the scene. And from there, Jesus is moving to Jerusalem. And in the beginning of chapter 14, we have now not a parable, but it kind of functions like a parable. The comparison of dinner at the Pharisee's house and then the parable of the great banquet. So chapter 14, verse 1 begins... It's still not on your study sheet, so don't be looking for it there. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Interesting. One of the things that I'd like running through your minds is the, is the comparison of a very uncomfortable dinner that you really don't feel like being at, and a dinner, a banquet that is just perfect and you're thrilled to be involved with. 
uh, a good question if, if this was a smaller group and, uh, and you opened up really quickly, which adventures don't. Um, I'd sort of ask, uh, what is the most memorable dinner that you've experienced? When was it just a lot of fun? Uh, you know, the, the exact opposite of all of this is a fundraising hotel banquet, <laughs> which most of us will do anything to get out of, uh, where you're crammed in around a small table and the waiters can't help but drop something on top of you because they're just sort of reaching and everything. And, uh, you know, in comparison to that, I'd far prefer a turkey sandwich on sourdough with a glass of iced tea with a friend one-on-one -on -one in a place where I could hear them and they could hear me. That would be far more enjoyable. Uh, so you've got two dinners going on here. The dinner in the Pharisee's house and the dinner, the great banquet that is described uh, as a parable. Jesus is being carefully watched. Jesus is a good person to always carefully watch, but not this way. He's being watched to see if he'll make a mistake. And again, have you ever been in that kind of situation where maybe the eyes on you are critical and suspicious and hoping that you'll make a mistake? Well, and apparently there's a plant here. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Uh, dropsy or hydropsy, now i reference that in a moment. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So it looks like this was a setup. You've got an ill person at this uh, prominent Pharisee's dinner, and he's placed in such a way that Jesus is obviously going to see him. And then Jesus looking and says, well, is it, is it legit to heal on the Sabbath day? And silence. I didn't know that the Pharisees were so southern. <laughs> but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Now, that, depending on how secular you are or how skeptical you are, we could spend the rest of our class together talking about the reasonableness of miracles. I believe that uh, a real strong case can be made for the power of the miraculous and for Jesus to be involved in healing and that healing and the miraculous were part of the testimony of who Jesus indeed was and is. Then he asked them, if any one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. And when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give the person your seat. And then humiliated, 
you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, and the word is called, 12 times kaleo is the Greek word for call, and that word is the one that's translated throughout this passage as invite. I And both in the ESV and the NIV, that's the case. I think it would be, I wish they'd keep the word call. When you have a consistent Greek word, I think it would be helpful if in each of these instances the word call was used. Uh, And let me interject here. Twelve times the word call is used here. I think it gives us something of a strategy of the theology of call. And uh, one of my tasks, I think, as a uh, seminary teacher is to convince seminarians that all believers are called. All of them are called to salvation, to service, to sacrifice, and to simplicity. We're all called. And I hope you don't think that I have a more special call than you. I believe very strongly in that, that all believers are called. And that all believers are called to a holy vocation. So what you are doing in the will of God for the sake of God's kingdom is your holy calling. And I don't think that the Lord looks at me to be holier than you. I believe he looks at all believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't think I am more gifted than you are. I have a specific gift that hopefully with the Lord's way in my life I I use for the kingdom purposes. And maybe it's more obvious because I get up from behind a pulpit. But I believe the strength of the church lies in believers fulfilling their calling. It may be to art, it may be to music, it may be to education, it may be to finance, it may be to medicine, it, it may be to business, it may be to architecture, it may be all sorts of jobs, as it were, work. But within that, then, there is the witness to God's grace and God's kingdom effort. So that's to me, this is very suggestive, this passage on a theology of call. Verse 11 in 14, we're still not at our text yet. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You realize how strategic that principle would be in the church in Corinth that Andrew has just been preaching on. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The way of love and the life of the church and the way of unity in the body of Christ is this kind of humility. Then Jesus said to the host, the Pharisee, the prominent Pharisee, uh, when Luke says he's a prominent Pharisee, that's a dig. That's a cutting remark. He's putting the Pharisee down when he says prominent. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you back. And so you will be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How would you like to be invited? How would you like to be the host of a dinner? And then one of the guests who you've invited in order to uh, scrutinize turns the tables on you and tells you you've invited the wrong people. Uh, You shouldn't be inviting your friends, your relatives. You should be inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. There is a definite uh, biblical resistance to the elite. There is a tension between the elect and the elite. This runs all through uh, salvation history. Uh, It may be very much the key for making progress in the kingdom of God. This distinction between the elite and the elect. Uh, um, Davison Hunter, James Davison Hunter, has written a book to change the world. And uh, we use it in a class that I teach on preaching and culture. He's a University of Virginia sociologist, and he has analyzed sort of the Christian position on cultural change. And he compares the kind of more uh, conservative evangelical wing to the more left sojourner uh, Anabaptist wing. To uh, he, he makes a really careful sociological analysis. He's well-respected and a, a strong Christian. And he talks about the fact of what actually does produce change in culture. And he concludes that it is through a power network. And it's usually not the very top people who change culture. It's the level of people underneath that that produce the biggest amount of change in culture. He makes this long sociological case for proving this. And then you you get to the place, if you're reading it as a Christian, that you think he's going to go and tell us that we really ought to be striving to get the Ivy League education. We should be working for the corner office. We should really try to be aspiring to be at the top of the media uh, um, industry. And all, I mean, it's like this is the next step. And you turn the page and he says, in effect, God despises elitism. Uh, It's anathema to him. Interesting, a University of Virginia sociologist saying this. God despises that kind of approach. Uh, And his thesis is, the title is to change the world. The thesis is, you can't. We won't. The world is the world, and it won't be changed. God's kingdom is not transforming this world into a better place, a nicer place. It's radically contradictory to the world system. Not going to change the world. Maybe that's a long way to illustrate that the elect over the elite 
is an understanding, a gospel understanding, that how to live faithfully in a world you can't change. Now, can we have an impact on people? Does this church, I hope, have a salt and light impact in Birmingham? Uh, are these concerns that we have? Sure. Most definitely. Can you affect your practice? Can you affect your office? Can you affect? Yes. But don't expect the world to overcome its evil. I wince every time someone says we want to eradicate a particular evil, uh, whether it's uh, cancer or sex trafficking, because it's not going to happen. Very good to aim. Very good to pursue justice. Very important to do. It's part of God's kingdom work. But it's not going to happen. I probably should open it up right now because I've made such bold statements. Um, pressing on. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I basically tried to cover uh, from one to seven. So let's read the parable now. Um, Luke 14, 15 through 25. It's in the right column in the italicized print. Listen carefully. This is God's word. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Well, okay, you, you get the scene, the prominent Pharisee, the tension between Jesus and the Pharisee, the uh, the. the uh, the suspicion, the skepticism, and then Jesus sort of really turning the tables on the Pharisee and saying, you've invited the wrong people. Uh, don't invite your friends. Uh, invite the poor, the crippled. Pursue that justice with a hospitality. And then somebody to break the tension that I think is around the table. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Kind of switching gears here. Trying to put something positive on the table. And this is the story Then Jesus tells. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, you know we do this save, this save the date idea. That's not modern. That's ancient. Uh, there's two invitations that go out. There is the save the date invitation and then the immediate invitation. And that's reflected here in uh, how the narrative is written. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to test drive them. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the answer, the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets, alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. Now, this is an interesting turn, twist there that the servants already had picked up on the idea that having failed with the elite, with the ones who you would expect 
to respond. The servants have already gotten ahead of the master in inviting the poor, the people on the street, the blind. Um, I, I find that really interesting. Uh, they're not even waiting for the master. They're already reading the master's intent. Verse 23, then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The word compel is interesting. It has been used in the history of the church to force people into church. Feeling like this legitimizes actual physical uh, movement in such a way as to make people Christians. And C.S. Lewis refers, this, uh, refers to this in his account of his conversion, Surprised by Joy. He talks about the fact that uh, no matter how badly people have misinterpreted this word, compel them to come in, and, you know, and aside here, there is no legitimacy to manipulate people, to trick them, to cleverly sort of deceive the invitation. There's, you cannot justify that on this word compel. But the, Lewis goes on to say that uh, this kind of compelling is the compelling power of God's love. Uh, and this is why you never write the last chapter on people. This is why you never give up. Uh, this, this compelling is not, not dealing with a worldly sense of force, but of an undying Christian love on behalf of the person that you desire uh, to welcome into the kingdom. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, what is Jesus saying? Essentially, is that it's a pointed rebuke by way of analogy, by indirect speech, to the fact that the Pharisees who counted themselves as insiders for the kingdom were really on the outside. And they have not received the calling, the invitation to come in. And they stood arrogantly, rigidly, inflexibly, boldly on the outside. Number eight, Jesus told the story uh, with three excuses, which recalls the parable of the seed and so soils. Remember that the, the sower plants the seed and three types are negative. There's only the one that is sown on good soil that lasts. And again, there, you've got that sort of parallel here. With its three negative soil types, the hard-packed seed, resistant ground, the rocky ground, which permitted only shallow growth, and the ground overgrown with thorns, but praise God, there's good soil in which that seed takes root as well. Number nine, these three excuses do not need to be overanalyzed. The first person who had already bought a field decided that now was the opportune time to see it. The second, the point of those excuses is that they're pretty normal. They're just sort of, they're not bad things. Everything indicated here is, is really good and natural, part of the routine of life and work and family, obviously. This is why Helmut Thielicke, in his book on parables, the German 
a pastor uh, says that the, the way to hell is paved with really good things and good intentions. It's business as usual. It's just personal preference. Uh, which is a sober reminder that the good things of life can get in the way of really responding to what God and his kingdom want for us. Number 10 kind of summarizes the point that I was making before that we're all called. The verb kaleo occurs 12 times in Luke. To ask who will be at the banquet is to ask who are the elect. And the parable provides an unexpected answer. God's call opens up the fullness of the gospel to all believers. We've been called. This is important here, just tracking with the idea of call and that there is no special call. We've been called to belong to Jesus, called to be his holy people, called to be free, called to be one body. We are all called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have all been called to suffer for Christ. We've all been called to peace. Paul's challenge is our challenge. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. All of these are kaleos, uh, heavenward in Christ Jesus. To be called is to be blessed, chosen, predestined, redeemed, saved by grace, and rooted and established in love. Jesus is the host. What's the best banquet you've ever been to? I asked that earlier. Uh, has any come to mind? What's been the most enjoyable dinner banquet experience that you have had? A four-hour restaurant dinner, unrushed, just in the good company of friends. Isn't it interesting that uh, the coming to God would be framed in this way of a great dinner, of a banquet? Uh, also, I referenced Helmut Thielicke. Uh, Helmut Thielicke says that we do a very poor jo job of convincing pagans, non-Christians, secularists, that it's really about joy. It's really about joy. Um, one of the... Uh, one of, I'm not a banquet kind of person. I don't really like large gatherings like that. Um, it's not exciting for me at all. Uh, but there was one large banquet that does stick in my mind, and that was the wedding of our daughter. Um, it came very close to our leaving First Press San Diego. Uh, we didn't really know we were leaving at the time. The opportunity here at Beeson uh, wasn't on the radar. And yet, looking back, it kind of was the culmination, the conclusion of our time there. Um, it was a church-wide wedding. Um, uh, both boys and and the boys don't mind me comparing their weddings to Kennerly's wedding at all. Um, their weddings were a lot smaller and et cetera, but um, good church weddings and all. But uh, 
Canterlees was sort of the culmination of our 14 years of work in this particular church. And the church kind of were excited about it. I don't think we made them excited about it. They were excited about it. And there's a picture of pretty much everybody that was at the wedding in the courtyard where we had a reception at the church. And somebody took a picture from the balcony with... And the, the bride and groom were kind of in the middle, as you'd expect. And I love that picture. It's got all of these people from 14 years of ministry happy, looking up. Um, and to me, that's something of a picture of the banquet table of the Lord. It's a picture of uh, that revelation-described um, wedding um, banquet. It's that's really it brings back so many positive good memories of families impacted by the gospel in that particular place. It's good for me as the you know the introvert that doesn't like fundraising banquets um, to envision what it's going to be like. Uh, I don't know if if Gil would agree with this, but. Um, you know, when you talk to teenagers, they really don't want the Lord to come until they've gotten married. <laughs> they kind of, you know, they're kind of a, that's they're not all that excited about the eschaton. Um, but uh, and then we wonder sometimes with the intimacy and closeness of relationship with a person, uh, how that can get better in eternity, especially when Jesus seems to delight in saying that there's no marriage. And uh, then the thought occurred to me as I worked on that type of theme was that what if heaven is all marriage? That the intimacy and the way of relating, the way of connecting, the way of being has that kind of companionship, that kind of friendship, that kind of uh, significance that all relationships are like that. It's mind blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing for me to envision that, that it would be that kind of friendship, that kind of fellowship, that kind of community. Number 13, just real quickly, um, so you can get on. Um, a summary of the significance of Jesus' parable. Let's use these just as a sum up. People should be responding eagerly to the imminent presence of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus anticipates. A sense of excitement, expectation, following through on the call. B, the parable is a challenge and a warning. What possibly could be so important about mundane affairs that they keep one away from God's celebration? Ah, you know, right. Did you realize that if all of us showed up every Sunday in the rhythms of God's grace to Advent to worship, what it would be like? We would definitely have to build a bigger room. We would. 
so I, I say that this is a very practical pastoral little point uh, because you don't worship your way into feelings. Or you don't feel your way into worship, you worship your way into feelings. That the rhythms of grace by which you uh, discipline yourself to be in the body, to be in fellowship, is really very important. See, the parable warns against presumption. The first will be last, the last will be first, is a theme throughout. Indeed, Jesus reveals God's concern for the poor and outcast and his desire to have a full house. Uh, we're having a conference on racial reconciliation this week um, at Beeson. And uh, the, the confrontation that just having the conference has produced has been phenomenal. Uh, certain people boycotting it and just how it was structured and who was asked and, and all of that that's... Uh, coming down, and uh, it makes me think that we've got to find indirect ways of dealing with the uh, disparities, economic and educational, within the city of Birmingham that are not directly related to race, but are directly related to the tasks that need to be uh, looked at and changed. Uh, But the church that loses its sensitivity to those who are kind of on the outcast, who are poor, who are displaced, who are struggling, uh, has lost a large part of its mission. And Jesus processes his own experience with this parable. Jesus is heading to the cross. He's going to experience rejection. And it's that which plays out in this parable as a significant kind of parallel to his own ministry. Well, we've run out of time. Uh, Let me close with prayer. Lord God, continue to please teach us through uh, directly through this indirect method, these parables that meant to be provocative, to speak into our situation today by the Spirit, even as they spoke in that Pharisee dinner context. Help us, Lord, to honor you and to serve you. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.